good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we're going to kick off an important three-part series as we explore the lives of Tennessee's first ladies, Rachel Jackson, Sarah Polk, and Eliza Johnson. We'll start today with Sarah Polk, wife of the 11th president of the United States, James K. Polk. Sarah Polk is considered by many historians to be one of the most influential of the 19th century first ladies. In a time when the position of first lady had no official capacity, Sarah Polk wielded a power seldom enjoyed by women of her age. Having no children of her own, she immersed herself in her husband's political career and became his closest advisor. Some historians, including today's guest, have written that Sarah Polk defined the role of First Lady. Her husband, James K. Polk, was the youngest president up to the time and the youngest to die outside of those who've been assassinated. Sarah outlived her husband by 42 years, making her the longest widowed First Lady in American history. Joining me today in the studio is my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, Professor of History at Columbia State Community College. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Tom. Together, we are joined on the phone by Dr. Amy Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg is the George Winfrey Professor of History and Women's Studies at Penn State University, a leading scholar of the history of 19th century America. She has held fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the American Philosophical Society. Her books include A Wicked War, Polk, Clay, Lincoln, and the 1846 U.S. Invasion of Mexico, published in 2013 by Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group, and Manifest Manhood and the Antebellum American Empire, published by Cambridge University Press in 2005. Her most recent work is the book Lady First, The World of First Lady Sarah Polk, published in 2019, also by Knopf. Welcome to History's Hook, Dr. Greenberg. Uh, Good morning, Tom. What got you interested in Sarah Polk as a subject for a full-length biography? Well, as you just mentioned, um, my previous book was about the U.S.-Mexico War. And in the course of researching that war and the political scene in Washington, I kept coming across references to First Lady Sarah Polk and the interactions that she had with Washington politicians. And in an effort to figure out who this woman was uh, and get a sense of how she influenced the war, I, like all historians, um, looked for some secondary sources on her and discovered that no academic biography had been written about this woman. In fact, the only biography that had been written um, was a short piece by um, a doctor. It It was good as far as it went, but relied really heavily on fictionalized uh, late 19th century sources and, and wasn't um, researched to the standards that um, I really was hoping for. And this, of course, was a huge contrast to Sarah's husband, James K. Polk, who has countless biographies, uh, including some really magnificent works. Um, and so this piqued my interest. Uh, and, I, and I realized in the course of writing A Wicked War that I I wasn't really capturing the full extent of how Sarah Polk acted, and I didn't really understand who she was because there wasn't much written on her. Uh, But then when I was on my book tour for A Wicked War, uh, I noticed that a lot of people asked me about Sarah Polk uh, after I delivered lectures um, or after they read the book, and they wanted to know more about this woman. And that led me down the path of writing her biography. Is there anything that surprised you about Sarah uh, after you undertook all of this research? Is there something that really stood out to you about her? 
oh, so much surprised me about her. Uh, I, you know, when I started writing this biography, I, I had no idea what I was getting into um, or how fascinating this woman was. Um, I, you know, a couple things about Sarah that that really um, impressed me were the way in which um, this young woman who grew up absolutely on the frontier in Tennessee managed to turn herself into enough of a polished intellectual political figure that she was respected in Washington, D.C., which was a very sophisticated, um, very sophisticated place in the 19th century, full of uh, men who um, believed that they knew more about politics than people anywhere else, and women who believed that they had more... Um, social status than anywhere else. And, and we have uh, Sarah, who comes to Washington, D.C. in the 1820s, first as James K. Polk's, um, as James K. Polk's wife when he is a congressman um, and impresses everybody in her early 20s with her intellect, her social skill, um, and, and also her, her culture. Uh, she never at any point acted like she was embarrassed about being from Frontier, Tennessee. She totally held her own. Another thing that really impressed me about Sarah was the relationships that she formed with uh, formidable men. Uh, people like um, Supreme Court Justice John Catron, uh her husband, um, just a lot of different Washington men, uh, and, and the respect that they accorded her, um, as a political, I don't know if I'd say political equal, but, but somebody whose views mattered. So they didn't talk down to her. Um, they took her seriously. And then I think the third thing that really amazed me about Sarah Polk was, um, the, her life after James died, and, and as you mentioned, you know, James dies very young. He, just, he dies three months after leaving office, and Sarah spends half of her life as a widow. And my understanding, based on what I had read, was that, um, well, she herself said after James died that her life was a blank, but in fact, her uh, post-White House life in Tennessee uh, was was really eventful. It was it was very exciting. She um, wielded a lot of power in a really impressive manner during the Civil War. She ran a plantation in Mississippi um, with a degree of both skill and um, I don't know if I want to say cruelty, but but uh, she she ran. A plantation and and exerted control over the 56 men and women who lived there uh, in in what was to me a sort of astounding way uh, for a 19th century woman. And then later in her life, she comes into her own as a political figure again with uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union taking her on as uh, an inspiration um, and working with. Uh, Confederate um, women's groups who want to uh, celebrate uh, Confederate accomplishments. So, you know, she had a very long, very dramatic life uh, and accomplished certainly much more than anybody would expect from um, the third of fourth children, the third of four children born um, on the Tennessee frontier and the beginning of the 19th century. Well, let's let's unpack the life of this complex woman. I, I love the highlights that you hit, that she's able first to straddle life both on the Tennessee frontier and in the, the most elite social circles in Washington, D.C. She becomes sort of a political operative in a time when she didn't even have the right to vote uh, or hold office. Uh, and as the longest widowed first lady in American history, D despite saying otherwise publicly, she she had a pretty full life during that time too. So let let's break this down a little bit. Let's start from the beginning. So you, as you just said, she was the third of six children, 
uh, growing up in in Tennessee. But even the place, she, she's kind of an enigma. E- even telling her own story later in her life, uh, there's a little controversy in terms of where she was even born. She she says one thing, records sort of indicate another. So where where exactly do you think she was born? Yeah. Um, okay. So she said she was born in Murfreesboro, which she most definitely wasn't. Um, so you know, one of the challenges of of writing the history of of Tennessee. Um, in the early 19th century is the lack of records that if you're used to writing history about um, more cosmopolitan places or a later period of history uh, is, is sort of surprising. So I've spent, I'm embarrassed to say months trying to figure out where Sarah's uh, birth certificate was until an archivist finally pointed out to me, there were no birth certificates issued in Tennessee in 1803. Um, I'm not going to find her birth certificate. So I, I eventually, you know, she said she was born in Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro didn't exist in 1803. Uh, and all of the land records that I could track down um, placed her father in a completely different county in Tennessee. Uh, in Sumner County, I think, which yeah, is on so, one of the bordering counties with Kentucky in, in the nor- right. northern middle part of middle, uh, right. Tennessee. Pla- placed him uh, in Sumner County at that time. So um, I believe she was born in Sumner County. Now, why did she say she was born in Murfreesboro? I think it's because she felt such a deep love for Murfreesboro, and that's where she grew up. Um, but honestly, she dissimulated a lot about her um, life. Uh, you know, her friends uh, like to say about her that um, she got a lot of information about other people from them, but she didn't give out a lot of information about herself. So that's a kind of fitting start to her, her life story. So she's really born um, on the frontier. Her dad is involved in land speculation. And um, like so many people, so many early settlers of middle Tennessee, uh, he is drawn to the region um, in order to um, grow staple crops with slaves. So he moves from North Carolina, um, as does actually James K. Polk's dad. And, uh, you know, settles in this land, which has recently been um, taken um, from the charity and, um, you know, buys land and and settles and and starts growing crops. And that's where Sarah's born. So she she's born in probably Sumner County, but in 1810, still as a young girl, the family does move to the Murfreesboro area. So, so really, that's the town where where she probably had her first first memories. What do we know about her maiden name is Childress? Joel Childress and Elizabeth Whitsett Childress are her parents. What what do we know about Joel Childress besides being a land speculator? Did he wield any political power? Was he oh was he an operative yeah. in town? What what was he doing? Oh well, Joel is so interesting. Um, I actually really enjoyed learning about him. So Joel Childress is the kind of guy that I don't think you would find a lot of places other than the frontier. And what I mean by that is he um, is convicted of murdering um, a man uh, and is branded on his hand um, after a judge by the name of Andrew Jackson um, convicts him of murder. Hmm. And yet he manages to become the postmaster of Murfreesboro. Um, like I said, he's a land speculator. From everything that I can tell, he is a remarkably lucky land speculator. Most land speculators, due to the unstable economy of the um, early and mid-19th century, uh, lose a lot of money at some point. In fact, Andrew Jackson um, loses a tremendous amount of money in land speculation, which you know a lot of historians have said becomes sort of the source of his... Uh, uh, hatred of banks and his belief in um, hard money that the only legitimate currency is is specie. But Joel Childress never seems to lose any money. All of his gambles work out well, and he becomes very wealthy. Um, I find it interesting know. that he, he yeah. murders a man. Uh, I think you write that he hits him in the head with a uh, with a board of some kind or a log or, yeah, or something. Yeah, like a two-by-four. Like yeah, a two-by-four. Right, and gets branded with a letter M on the palm of his hand. But maybe on the frontier, maybe on frontier Tennessee, that kind of behavior brings you some 
cachet a little bit down the road. That's the rough and tumble side of, of Frontier, yeah. Tennessee, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, or at least it doesn't, uh, you know, make it impossible for you to get ahead. I mean, this is, this is sort of what I figured out, is that you would think, you or I would think, uh, were one convicted of murder, uh, one would not be able to become politically powerful or uh, get appointed to significant political positions. No, au contraire. So, Joel, that doesn't hurt Joel at all. Does it help him? It, it might. He becomes very good friends with Andrew Jackson um, after that that happens. So, anyhow, he isn't hurt. You know, one of the things, he isn't hurt by that. One of the things that I was also amazed by about Joel Childress is he apparently um, was a learned man. Uh, the contents of his estate after his death... Um, the probate records recorded all sorts of wonderful classical books that were in his library. So the man was a reader. Um, I would love to know, had he gone to school at all? I mean, I have no, no evidence of this, and somehow, somehow I doubt it. Somehow I doubt it. He moved uh, to Tennessee um, with his young wife when he himself was pretty young. So I, I don't exactly know um, where he got his love of literature, but he clearly loved literature, and he had many beautiful things in his home. So it, it becomes clear that whether he had an education or not, he 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 believes in the power of education and wants to see that all of his children have an opportunity to become educated. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And now, when you look at like what are the things that made Sarah Polk uh, the remarkable person that she is, I, I think that the first really important element to her rise is the fact that her father took her and her sister seriously. Um, they, he clearly, and I assume that his wife Elizabeth felt the same way. We don't really have any records from Elizabeth. We don't know much about her. Um, we know more about Joel, but we can assume that they were um, in accord on the fact that um, all their kids get educated. So this was not a situation where, they put all of their resources into the eldest son, um, which is a thing that, that people were doing at the time, a lot of people. They had um, these, these four living children, two girls and two boys, and they educated them all. And one of the things that Joel did right away is he became a trustee of the Murfreesboro Academy, and he arranged for the tutor or the... Um, I guess you maybe today you'd call him the principal, the principal of the academy to give lessons to Sarah and her sister Susan at the Murfreesboro Academy, which was only open to boys, to give them lessons after the boys were done in the day. So they were educated to the same level that the boys were. And at this academy, um, which her brothers attended, um, James K. Polk also attended that academy as well. Um, and then after um, they spent um, a year or two at the Murfreesboro Academy, Joel arranged for Sarah and Susan to go to the Salem Women's Academy in Salem, North Carolina, which was the finest academy open to women possibly in the United States. So the scholars that I know who work on women's education, they say that um, when you look at the schools that were open to women um, in terms of how serious and demanding the curriculum was, that the academy in Salem was, was as good as anything else offered in the United States. The girls there um, are reading um, almost the same exact same curriculum that the boys at um, what becomes the University of North Carolina um, nearby are reading um, with the exception of classical languages. So they're reading really serious works of history, natural sciences, mathematics. Um, the, the books that they're reading are hard and that's the education that Joel wants for his daughters. And that's what he gives Sarah at great expense. And that absolutely shapes who she becomes um, 
there, there's, there's a there's a yeah. letter that uh, he writes to her that you sort of discovered. I don't think it's ever been published in anything else before. That really illuminates, I think, better than anything else, this relationship between father and daughter and what and and how it shapes her maybe in her later life. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Oh, absolutely. So um, I was fortunate enough um, to uh, get access to a letter owned by a private collector. Um, which Joel wrote to Sarah uh, when she was at the Salem um, Academy. And this, this letter was, it just absolutely blew me away. It was like one of those wonderful moments as a historian um, to, to find something like this, something that's never been published and nobody knew about. Uh, and, and so in this letter, Joel writes to Sarah um, and he does the normal things that you would expect from a dad um, to a daughter who's away at school, you know, um, attend to your studies, make sure you're sleeping well, um, that sort of thing. But he also discusses um, financial matters to, it, it, with a degree of respect um, and and. Uh, in, in a kind of implicit understanding that Sarah will care about the financial matters and will understand them that I found pretty impressive. I'm not sure that um, most people today would even write to uh, a 15 year old um, child that way, but, but he did. And, and then the best thing about the letter, the thing that really took my breath away is he closes his letter um your father and friend, Joel Childress. So instead of signing off um, simply your father, he says your father and friend. And right. for a father to address a daughter uh, in, the, in that way um, in the 18 teens is, it just speaks volumes about his, the way that he understood their relationship. Right. I, I wish there were more records on him because he's clearly a complex man as well, going from uh, murdering a, a man to this side of him that shows a real deep affection uh, and skill at parenthood, quite frankly, I think, that, that really belies Absolutely. much of what you read of, of the period. We have to take our first break right now, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion on Sarah Polk. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the complex and very interesting life of Sarah Childress Polk. Uh, First Lady of the United States, wife of the 11th President, James K. Polk. We have joining us via phone uh, this morning, Dr. Amy Greenberg, professor of history at Penn State University, who penned a biography of Sarah called Lady First, the World of First Lady Sarah Polk. So, Dr. Greenberg, we were talking about Sarah's uh, really pretty remarkable education, uh, given that she grows up on the western frontier in, in Tennessee, uh, as you mentioned, she attended Salem Academy, uh, which was one of the finest girls' schools, if not the finest and oldest uh, schools in the country for young women. Did she graduate from Salem Academy? Oh, sadly, she did not. Um, her father died, and so she came back to Murfreesboro um, to care for her mother. Uh, and, the, you know, there would have been plenty of money um, for her to stay at the academy, but her mother needed her, so so she came back. Let's talk about um, her, her mother for, for just a moment. It, it appears from the biography that she was a fairly religious woman. What, what were Sarah's religious predilections? So uh, the role of religion in Sarah's life was, was a, a huge deal. Um, her mother was an old-school Presbyterian, um, which... You know, as far as I can tell, it's about the closest thing to Puritanism that was still around in the early 19th century. So, you know, in a period of time when a lot of people um, are influenced by evangelical uh, religious movements stemming from the Second Great Awakening, um, religious movements that suggest that people's um, 
fate uh, is in their own hands, that anybody can be born again. Uh, Old school Presbyterians really stick to the view that God is unknowable um, and that what you do really can't doesn't have that much to that your actions don't play that big a role in whether or not you're going to go to to heaven or not, um, that God kind of has decided these things already. Um, and that, that there's a hierarchy to the world. Um, old school Presbyterians, uh, believed that they believed in stability and hierarchy. And you, you can see this in Elizabeth Childress, um, Sarah's mother's, um, views on the world. And it's something that Sarah, um, embraces as well. And I should also point out that James's, um, James K. Polk's mother uh, also um, is an old school Presbyterian. So, so we've got a lot of old school Presbyterianism um, going on around these parts. And so Sarah, um, she takes religion extremely seriously. She's a um, Sabbatarian, which means that she doesn't want to do anything on Sunday. In fact, the only time um, that I found that she ever denied um, James a request uh, for her to help him was on a Sunday um, when she just, she didn't want to work because it was a Sunday. Uh, she didn't drink alcohol. She didn't believe in dancing. She didn't believe in gambling. Um, she, she was pretty, pretty strict. She had pretty strict morals um, in terms of religious observance. Um, also, um, you know, always, always went to church. How, how, did, how did people react to that later in her life as she's first lady, uh, stopping the serving of hard liquor in the White House, for instance, and, and dancing uh, in a time when, when these things were uh, very much a part of the social fabric of Washington, D.C.? How did people react to Sarah Polk as the Sabbatarian? Well, this kind of cracked me up. So, she, you know, here we have this woman. She shows up in Washington, D.C. Um, I mean, everybody knows her as a young woman, but when she becomes first lady, um, she's replacing um, Julia Tyler, who's, who's President John Tyler's uh, second um, wife, much younger wife. And uh, the Tylers were partiers. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. Um, they held big, boozy parties. And in doing that, they were pretty much in keeping with Washington, D.C. tradition. So Washington, D.C., uh, you know, I think you would have to say that Washington, D.C. is sort of out of step with the rest of the country in terms of um, their values and their actions. So, um Men and women socialize more freely. Um, people are generally um, less religiously observant. Um, and social, so, certainly um, uh, social interactions are, there's more partying, there's more fun, a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> the Tylers had big vats of uh, punch made out of hard alcohol at all their parties and um, people gambled and gambling was a huge deal in Washington, D.C. and dancing. So Sarah comes in to the White House and she just announces that there's going to be no dancing and no gambling and no hard alcohol. And in fact, I think probably if it was up to her, there'd be no alcohol at all. But you you couldn't entertain um, diplomats without wine. I mean, that just I don't know that they would even come. I don't know that a diplomat from France would come to the White House if there wasn't some wine to drink. So there was wine. Sarah didn't drink it herself. Um, but but so Washington, D.C. Is, is outraged. I mean, the, especially young people, uh, they think Sarah is a, sort of a fuddy-duddy um, and terrible. And Julia Tyler writes some um, pretty petty things about um, how uh, awful and unpleasant Sarah Polk is. But, but the reaction in the rest of the country is exactly the opposite. So Sarah becomes this national hero to all of the ordinary religious people across the United States who don't dance and don't gamble. And maybe if they do dance a little bit, maybe if they drink a little bit, they love the idea of a first lady who's upholding religious values. So, you know, one of the things that I found so amazing about this is that the public perception of Sarah Polk, and I think it's something that she, it's a, it's a public image that she carefully manipulates and advances. The public image of her is that she is um, this incredibly morally upright, traditional woman. 
and they love that there's this traditional moral woman in the White House. But in reality, um, there's nothing traditional about her at all, because even though she doesn't drink, she doesn't dance, she doesn't gamble. Oh, she doesn't go to the theater either. That was another big one. No theater, um, no horse racing, nothing like that. Um, She is so involved in political um, machinations that if the public knew about it, they they would absolutely be astounded. So she looks from her outside behavior like she is the most traditional moral woman that you could imagine. But in reality, she is a political mover and shaker. She, she's using it to her advantage. I, I think it's really interesting that she has these these strict moral tendencies as part of her whole life. I mean, it's a part of who she was. She becomes first lady in a time where, although it was a little difficult maybe for Washington society to swallow, on the other hand, you're seeing a great number of social reform movements happening, na- happening nationally, like the temperance movement. And so her time in the White House sort of coincides with some of those ideals, and, and it really... I think uh, uh, it has a factor in favorably for her in oh, terms of how people, people absolutely. see her. Um, so let's take a, a little bit of a step back. How, how did James and Sarah poke meet? Okay, so I'm not 100% sure of the answer to that. Um, they might have met um, at the Murfreesboro Academy. Um, Sarah was quite a bit younger than James, so there's no reason why she would have noticed him or they would have interacted. Um, I did come across a very interesting um, fact in the course of my research, which is that they were both at a wedding at Felix Grundy's house. So Felix Grundy's um, daughter was getting married and Sarah was a bridesmaid at that wedding. And James, who was studying law with Felix Grundy, was there as well. So they probably met there. Um, there is a rumor that um, Andrew Jackson encouraged James to court Sarah Polk. Um, she was he um, she was um, uh, 19, 18 or 19 at the time. Uh, extremely wealthy because she inherited um, 10 slaves from her father, uh, which made her um, enormously rich. Uh, She was well-educated. And the house that she lived in um, was a sort of center of political life uh, in Murfreesboro, which, of course, was the capital of Tennessee at that time. So lots of politicians were coming and going through the house. Uh, So James had a number of opportunities to meet her. Um, They definitely hit it off. Uh, he was the, I think he was the secretary of the legislature at that time, um, or a clerk in the legislature. And uh, their personalities really couldn't have been more opposite. She was extremely uh, extroverted um, and bubbly and charming and a great uh, speaker Everybody commented on what a pleasure it was to talk to her. And James was um, shy. I think you could call him taciturn, um, definitely introverted. So it's nice to think about the two of them meeting and talking and feeling like maybe admiring each other for the, the characteristics that one had that the other one wished that they had or... Hmm. Um, I don't know, but one thing that I'm absolutely sure of is is that when they courted each other, they talked a lot about politics because they both loved politics. That becomes, if there's anything, I think, in this relationship that you can glean from the existing letters, politics is sort of the center of the universe. It's certainly James K. Polk, Polk's life. Uh, some historians have said that was his religion, that was his hobby, everything about him was politics. Um, but it appears that's that's a thing that she not only admired in him, but she loved that realm as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can see that in the letters between her and um, her brother, John. Um, they write about politics to each other. Uh, yeah, she she loves politics, too. And I think maybe if she married another different kind of person, um, politics wouldn't have become as central to her life as they did. But 
she was absolutely happy to accompany James on this journey. And uh, what a wonderful relationship they developed. Um, and Polk's you know, political in- star was on the rise. They, As you said, he had been clerk of the state senate, I think, just prior to their marriage. In the year that they got married, he had been elected to the state legislature. Within a year after that, he was elected to the United States Congress. So um, so he, his political career is certainly on the rise, but she's right there with him. So they, they have no children uh, throughout the life and we can, their life, and we can talk a little bit more about that in, in a moment. But where is she as he, as he starts going to Washington as a United States congressman? Is she staying in Columbia, Tennessee, where their home is, or where is she by his side? Where, where is she in the mix of this? So when they're first married, you know, she's just 20. Um, and when he first gets elected to Congress, he does the expected thing, which is he goes to Washington, um, for the first, um, session of his, um, two year term. And she is living in Columbia, uh, not far from, um, her in-laws, you know, surrounded by the Polk clan. And I, I think she was miserable. Um, he definitely was miserable. And they decided after the first session of his congressional term that she would return to Washington with him. And this uh, was a a sort of unusual decision. Washington, D.C. wasn't really set up for families. Um, Congressmen got paid very little. um, And congressmen, um, including James, uh, almost all of them lived in boarding houses. And so it wasn't really a place for um, congressmen to bring uh, their wives, uh, but Sarah decided to go and, and she loved Washington DC. And, and, you know, after that first year in Columbia, um, she was by James's side, um, for almost the entirety of his political career in Washington. Um, then back in, uh, Nashville when he is governor, um, and then Washington DC again, when he's president. We're going to stop right there, and we're going to take our second break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Sarah Polk as political operative uh, and lead up to her time as first lady. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. You're listening to Hail to the Chief, one of Sarah Polk's legacies while First Lady in the White House. She started the use of that song as the official anthem for the President of the United States, hoping to uh, bring some attention to her husband, who sometimes was a little bit overshadowed in the crowd. He was average height, five feet, seven inches tall, quiet in his mannerisms. That was a way uh, for Sarah to bring, bring some attention to her husband. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Amy Greenberg, author of Lady First, the world of First Lady Sarah Polk. Dr. Greenberg, uh, let's talk about Sarah Polk a little bit uh, as a political operative. So she is accompanying her husband to Washington, D.C. during his 14-year tenure in the United States House of Representatives. He would go on to be governor of Tennessee all before becoming president at age 49, the youngest up to the time. What is her role as the wife of a congressman, speaker of the House, governor, and eventually president of the United States? Okay. So the traditional role of a wife in these situations um, is as an entertainer, um, somebody who hosts uh, dinners uh, and basically takes care of the the political spouse. Sarah does things differently. Um, Sarah makes the role of a politician's wife into her own remarkable thing. And what Sarah does is she becomes James's uh, sounding board and I would say um, political other half. And what I mean by that is that um, men in Washington and anywhere that James is a politician 
they realize that Sarah has James's ear and that Sarah can be expected to speak for and as um, in her husband's interests. And in general, uh, politicians prefer to talk to Sarah than to James. And that's because James um, is rather secretive. He's not a great communicator. Um, he doesn't have a huge sense of humor. Uh, and Sarah is a very, very good listener. So she has conversations with men um, privately on behalf of her husband. And in these conversations, she is very careful to downplay her own significance. And this is part of what I describe as really her amazing political innovation of a politics of deference. Sarah uses expectations about women's deferential position vis-a-vis -vis men to actually accrue and exercise a ton of power. And the way that she does this is that she will talk to a politician and she will say, um, you know, my husband thinks this, or my husband believes that, or my husband um, is in favor of this or that. And the politician uh, will respond to her knowing that she will convey this information back to her husband. Um, and she never expresses her own viewpoint as her own viewpoint. She also frequently says, well, you know, I'm, I don't really know much about this issue, but it seems to me, or my husband has said, blah, 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 blah. So in, in doing all this, um, she doesn't threaten anybody, but she also is able to exert herself in the political sphere. She's able to move um, amongst men. Um, she's frequently in the company of men. Um, her female friends point out that she would rather be um, sitting in a room with male politicians than with their wives uh, most of the time hmm. um, and talking about politics. But again, not putting herself forward as a political expert because that would um, not be seemly um, by always deferring to the men and in that way, uh, charming them. Um, and so this is sort of where Sarah Polk gets her political power from. Is this calculated? Is this a thought process in her mind, this act of being deferential to men and to her husband? Is she really putting out her own beliefs, her own political oh, thought process? Absolutely. 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 It's, it's absolutely calculated. Um, Sarah is really, really canny. And you can see this with her manipulation of the press, um, the things that she lets the press see her do, um, the way that she... Uh, uses her role as the first lady to advance certain positions. Um, she's very calculated, but I don't want to suggest that she's operating um, at, at odds with her husband. She and James are absolutely a political team. And this is one of the things that I find um, really most endearing about their relationship is the extent to which they are really a unit of two. Um, as you pointed out, um, they are childless. I don't think that this is a minor aspect of their life. They are the only presidential couple that never adopts children or has children of their own. They have plenty of opportunities to adopt children. They don't take advantage of them. They are so happy together. Um, James encourages Sarah's political work. Um, I think actually he pushed her into working as his communication director and as his secretary. He's constantly asking her to get information for him by which she means, by which he means going and talking to politicians and finding out things for him or conveying to them things that he thinks. Uh, he sees her political capabilities and asks her to rise to the challenge in helping him become president. Dr. Greenberg, you uh, told a wonderful story in your book uh, going to the 1844 presidential campaign where you made a, a, a contrast between Henry Clay's wife, Lucretia, and uh, Sarah. And if I may, uh, someone had remarked uh, that she hoped that Mr. Clay would be elected president because Lucretia, Lucretia Clay was a good housekeeper and made fine butter. 
when... and Sarah says, uh, yeah, you know what? Um, if I become first lady, uh, you know, I'm not going to make butter. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, I love that story too. She doesn't make any pretensions to being a good housekeeper. She doesn't make her own butter. Uh, she just helps her husband with his politics. Uh, and I kind of love that about her. I also actually want to say in favor of Lucretia Clay that um, she apparently produced some of the finest hams um, in Kentucky. So let's just put that out there. Lucretia Clay was a significant uh, figure in her own right when it came to household production. But Sarah was the politician. James, Co- uh, James Polk's presidency was packed full of accomplishment. He lowered the tariff reestablished the independent treasury system. He threatened war with England that ended in a treaty that delineated the Pacific Northwest. He prosecuted a controversial war with Mexico that acquired the American Southwest and made the United States a truly continental power. Sarah was in the middle of it all. Um, On the home front, we see a time of great social change. Abolitionism is on the rise, the temperance movement, as we talked about, and the first organized attempts at women's rights are happening. So there, there's a great deal. This is a very dynamic time in American history. Where does Sarah fit into this complex, rapidly changing and expanding world? Is she, is she a part of this women's rights movement? Is she reading about abolitionism? Is she part of the temperance movement? Well, Sarah reads about everything. Um, you know, one of the things that Sarah does um, on behalf of the Polk administration is she reads all of the news and conveys to James the things that he needs to know. So he, she's basically, um, she knows everything that's happening. She is not a women's rights supporter, however. Um, in fact, I think one of the reasons that Sarah has been so overlooked is that she's this incredibly powerful political woman at the same time that the women's rights movement is really getting started. So she's really out of step in terms of our political narratives with what's going on in the world. Like, you know, she, um, we think about powerful political women in the 1840s uh, being Elizabeth Cady Stanton and people like that. Uh, The women who are out there really risking a lot in order to get women the right to vote, the the right to um, control their own property and marriage, the right to um, keep their children if a divorce happens. And Sarah uh, isn't involved in any of that. Instead, she is quietly um, practicing her deferential politics, meeting, as we know from James K. Polk's diary, privately meeting with men in the White House with politicians to sound them out about things. Uh, And... um, Uh, hosting political parties and political events uh, in the White House in order to uh, promote the U.S.-Mexico war um, and to promote James's policies. So she's she's really out of step with the social movements that are happening um, on every level. And and that's that's kind of why Sarah doesn't fit neatly into uh, the narrative of women's political power. One of those movements that I mentioned was abolitionism, of course. It's really in no small part because of James K. Polk's policies of expansion that abolitionism really becomes a political force in the country. And, of course, it would culminate in a civil war a dozen years later. We can't talk about the Polks without talking about slavery uh, and the enslaved people uh, uh, under their under their uh, thumb, so to speak, um, can, can you speak to that? The, the Pokes were slaveholders from the time that they were married. Yeah, so slavery is, is one of the, the key elements um, of the history of the United States, obviously, but certainly the history of the Polks. Both Sarah and James's um, families got rich off of slavery. And like I said already, you know, Sarah's uh, incredible value as a marriage prospect is due to the fact that she inherits 10 slaves from her father and brings those as a dowry into the marriage. Um, Sarah's life at every moment is shaped by the fact that she owns people and she understands the world in terms of white people having power over black people. Um, 
you know, this is really deserves a longer conversation than we have time for here, but her ability to focus on James's political career, to um, have the freedom to travel with her husband, um, to spend all of her time uh, reading political reports and meeting with politicians is due to the fact that the people that she owns are doing her cleaning and her cooking and taking care of her. Uh, and they are slaving um, under incredibly brutal conditions on plantations, growing cotton that for the Pope's for money for the Pope's. And while James is president, um, Sarah secretly buys young children um, to send to their plantation in Mississippi. And she does that so that James has plausible deniability because the country would never accept a president um, buying young people, some as young as, as 11, um, and taking them from their family and sending them to work in the cotton fields. But Sarah does that, and she does that because that's how the Pokes make money, and they think that's right. They see nothing wrong with that. And in fact, that viewpoint that slavery is right and it's just, Sarah believes that. She actually believes Sarah, she believes that slavery is justified by God, that it is part of God's plan and that it's right, not just for her, but for the country. And this is part of what leads Southerners like James K. Polk to promote the U.S.-Mexico war, a war that will bring more land into the country where hopefully in the minds of Southerners, slavery can expand. James K. Polk dies three months after leaving the White House. Sarah is just 46 years old and now a widow. Little does she know her life is just half over at the time of her husband's death. Uh, she all of a sudden has to take care of everything. They had just purchased a home in downtown Nashville, which they called Polk Place, one of the finest homes in, in Nashville. Uh, but as you just said, the main source of their income... Uh, now, they had made $25,000 a year, I think. That was the presidential salary. But they had been in a fair amount of debt prior to uh, his presidency. Uh, they had been able to, uh, by all accounts, save a little bit of money by the time they left office. But that source of income was going to be that plantation that they were absentee owners of in Mississippi. With James gone, Sarah sort of has to take over the running of that. How effective is she as a business person? Well, she's really effective. And, and I found... Um I found researching her decade as a plantation owner to be um, some of the most harrowing and difficult, but, and also kind of astounding um, work that I had to do on this project. Um, I'm not normally a historian of slavery. That's not kind of, I'm, I think of myself as a political historian. Uh, and learning about the conditions on, on the Polk Plantation um, the disease, uh, the high um, mortality rates, especially among young women um, and children, um, the horrible conditions of life on this plantation uh, was, was really, really difficult coming to terms with that. And I think to a certain degree, um, Sarah, in the years in the 1850s, when she is um, the owner of this plantation, she comes to terms with it, too. And um, she uh, is a very um, canny and successful businesswoman. She makes a tremendous amount of money running this plantation. Um, and uh, she makes that money um, at the expense, um, in, in many cases, of the health of, of the people that she owns. So it's, it's for somebody studying Sarah Polk and, and you know, trying to understand her as a person it's it's not a not necessarily a fun part of the story but it's such a it's such a crucial part of the story so so yeah she's she's a very successful businesswoman um and and her success comes from being able to exploit uh the lives of people that she owns about how many enslaved people lived and worked on that plantation in mississippi 
think 56. So it was, it was sizable. Um, oh yeah. We're, we're unfortunately running out of time. We, we could do several shows on Sarah Polk. I'm, I'm afraid, but uh, talk about Sarah Polk during the civil war. Where did she align herself uh, as that conflict starts to unfold? Oh, well, um, in contrast to the, the very uh, dour and difficult um, plantation years, um, the working on the Civil War was, from you know my perspective, a lot more fun. Because, okay, so here's what Sarah does, which really, I think, speaks volumes about who she was. So at the beginning of the war, um, when Nashville is taken over by the Union um, Army, uh, she has a choice, and her choice is to leave Nashville, uh, like a lot of other people do, and flee to the south, um, somewhere where she'll be safe from the Union Army. Um, and But she decides not to do that. She decides to stay at Polk Place, where her husband is buried, and she does this remarkable thing, which as far as I can tell, she came up with entirely on her own, which is that she announces that Polk Place is neutral ground, and that she herself is a neutral party by virtue of being a first lady. So she makes a claim that by virtue of being a first lady, both sides need to treat her with respect and she can do what she wants. And you know what? They buy it. The Union (laughs) Army buys it. The Confederate Army buys it. And I think this is just, this is remarkable. So you see uh, all of these um, generals and other officers from the Union Army, they go visit Sarah Polk at Polk Place. Polk Place is always open, always open to people. And they come in, and she immediately starts talking about what a great patriot James was. Again, doing this deferential thing that she's so good at. Um, she talks about her husband. Uh, and the Union officers leave Polk Place com- not at all convinced that she's neutral. They think she's working for the Confederacy, but there's nothing they can do about it because... She is a figure who carries um, a lot of authority, um, not just in Nashville, Nashville, but but nationally. And they kind of need her on on their side. So where do her allegiances lay? Clearly, they lead. They lay with the Confederacy. There's no question. She um, saves uh, Confederate goods. She hides them in her house. Um, She works on behalf of Confederate soldiers, um, aiding them and sending them money. she is never openly partisan. Uh, she flies an American flag, but her allegiance is clearly with the South. It's an incredible story. She lives 42 years, dies just short of her 88th birthday in 1891. So her life really spans almost all of the 19th century. What is Sarah Polk's greatest legacy, Dr. Greenberg? I think Sarah Polk's greatest legacy is being a partner is is first la- a first lady as a full political partner to their husband. I think that's her greatest legacy. So she's really the first first lady who does this um, who is as much of a politician as her husband is and and his other half. So I, I would say that's her biggest legacy. Dr. Amy Greenberg, thank you so much for talking with us today. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. I leave you with a quote from our guest's book, Ladies First. Dr. Greenberg wrote this. In 1848, Sarah Polk was the most powerful woman in America. She controlled access to her husband and helped coordinate the Democratic Party's political agenda. She managed her husband's political campaigns and negotiated on his behalf with men who understood her value as a conduit. No accident, her power was grounded in decades of work as a political spouse her remarkable powers of innovation, a deep and abiding love of politics, and the unpaid labor of dozens of enslaved people who toiled for her in her home and on the cotton plantation. As a marital partner and her husband's closest advisor, Mrs. James K. Polk, the name she preferred for herself, helped create the office of First Lady. Her political partnership with her husband and the manner in which she expanded the First Lady's role prefigured the activist First Ladies of our own era. Dr. Greenbrook's Dr. Greenberg's book is called Lady First, The World of First Lady Sarah Pope. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Marine Giles County, for their support. On behalf of my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. 
Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.